the fact that God never fails us, sometimes we take that for granted. We actually, if you follow along with me, we take a bunch of things for granted, don't we? Think about it in your own life. What sometimes do you take for granted? By the way, I would define taking something for granted as to value something to or someone too lightly. It's a failure to properly notice or appreciate someone or something uh, that should be valued. So it's, it's not valuing something properly. And I thought of a few. Maybe you can too. Uh, I, I was in my washroom this morning and I valued running water. I valued um, the facilities because uh, in North America that's just what we have. But if you go around the world, you'll find that that's not always the case. I, uh, I take for granted even the shelter over my head. Uh, every day I wake up, I, I, I say, thank you, God, for my, my home, my, this wonderful structure. Uh, you know, when, when we were in the city, Kathy had to take uh, the TTC to work. It just worked out that way. And no matter what you think of the TTC in Toronto, we thank God for the fact that that transportation was available. How about more serious stuff? Do you take for granted your health? Yeah. I think, I think we often do that. You, you know, a little older, you start to take it, you start to value your health more often. When you're young and vital and things are going well and you can run to first base when you're playing baseball without panting by the time you get there, you go, oh, my health is so important. I think the most challenging thing we do and, the, and, and almost the most awful thing we do uh, ne- next to God is taking our loved ones for granted, people we love. And then, of course, ultimately, we take God for granted. And this week, as I thought about what I take for granted, uh, I really did think about Jesus and my walk with Jesus. Do I take a bunch of things with my walk with Jesus for granted? Just like, eh, I expect them. And, and the most, the, the topic that came to mind the most was, do I take the grace of God for granted too often? Think about it. If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and you maybe you've known him for a long time, do you take that grace that saved you for granted? It's too easy. All of us who know Jesus and have experienced that saving grace, that gloriously transforming, wonderful grace of Jesus, how many times have we taken that for granted? So today I want to talk a little bit more about the grace of God. And, and in terms of what I titled this message is, so what's, uh, what's so amazing about God's grace? What's so amazing about God's grace? We take things for granted when we don't contemplate the depth of their value in our lives. So to get after this, we have to really define what is the grace of God. And so here's the definition we're going to work with today. There's all kinds of different ways of saying this, but I'm saying it this way this morning. The grace of God is the undeserved favor or unworked-for favor of God to mankind. Uh, Some have said it is the unmerited favor of God. See, grace can't be earned. 
grace of God can't be earned. It is something that God gives freely to each one of us. And then we can count on God's grace as that bridge that he built in order for mankind to have a right relationship with him. So the grace of God for this world is critical. It is of the highest, should be of the highest value and importance to each one of us. But I do want to let you know that the grace of God is found intermingled with and a key component of the love of God. It is, the grace of God is a part of God's character. It's not just an add-on to the goodness of God. It is a key component of who God is. He is gracious. Just as much as he is loving and just as much as he is a God of justice. All of those things are intertwined that you can't separate them. God's grace. Now, if you go into your uh, ESV Bible, English Standard Bible, you'll discover that the word grace throughout the, uh, the text is used 131 times. And out of those 131 times, 124 are used in the New Testament. And interesting enough, out of the 124 uses, 86 are attributed to Paul. They come from the writings of the Apostle Paul. That's two-thirds of all the uses come from Paul. No wonder the Apostle Paul, uh, fun fact for you, is called the Apostle of, you got it? Grace. The Apostle Paul is called the Apostle of Grace because he loved talking about the grace of God. So, this morning, if we just take a quick survey of Paul talking about grace in a few of his verses, we can go to a few, like, for example, Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Pretty critical verse to understand. If you're searching to know uh, the love of God and have a relationship with God, you've you got to put your mark on that verse. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we're at. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. God's grace is able to meet mankind at the depth of their lowest point as a human being. And you may feel this morning, if you're searching, that you're pretty low. <laughs> God will reach down even lower if that's where you want to go. But don't go there. Reach out to God and say, I want to accept your free gift of grace. Grace of God is the means to being justified before God. That's what it tells us in this verse. And we have to understand that justified is what it means to be made right with God. And isn't that every, shouldn't that be every man, woman, child's desire to be made right with God? And God's made a way. Look at the next verse, Romans 5.15. Romans 5.15. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Just ponder that. Read that again. That one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for... Grace is the quality in God that produces free gifts for guilty sinners in and through salvation. I love Titus. Uh, 
Titus uh, 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God's grace has abounded for many, has brought salvation for all people. God's grace is free and open to all. And it's been made possible solely by the work of Jesus Christ. It's important to understand. It's nothing we can do. It's all about what Jesus has done. Let me give you another verse. Romans 11. Romans 11, 5 and 6. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, Paul's talking to a, uh, uh, a Jewish audience at this time, and he's reminding them that they as a people were chosen by God's grace. But more importantly, he's saying, uh, if by grace, it's no longer on the basis of work. I was chatting with somebody this week who wanted to tell me, but you still, I, I hear you talking about God's grace, it's free and all that, but you still got to do stuff, right? To earn it? You still got to be good. You still got to do these different things. And he mentioned a few things that I said, no, it is all of the grace of God. And this is a difficult thing because as men and women, we want to do something to earn the favor. But God says, you cannot earn my favor. It is what Jesus has done. Just accept that by grace and through faith. So if you think about these verses that we've just looked at, we see that it, the grace of God is a free gift from God. And it overcomes the required punishment for sin. Two, grace is delivered by the work of Jesus Christ alone, received by faith in him. We don't have to do anything to receive it. There's no work involved. It's just trusting what Jesus did takes care of my sin, the punishment for my sin. It doesn't matter what your race is, your socioeconomic standing. God's grace never discriminates. Through Christ's redemption of our sinful humanity, God's grace abounds. It's overflowing. There is never going to be a problem with the, the amount of grace required and the amount of grace that God has. He has more grace than we can imagine. All for us. The purpose of God's grace is for sinners to be free. Oh, freedom is so wonderful. Free to be, to be free from the wages of sin, the costs of our sin. To be cleansed from the stain of our sin. To be given all that we need to live a holy and God-honoring life. So we need to not take God's grace for granted. Well, in order for us not to take God's grace for granted, let's understand the depths of our need uh, for God's grace. Uh, sometimes we take uh, something for granted when we under don't understand clearly what it's for, why we need it so badly. And so why is grace so desperately needed? Because all of us are sinners. 
each and every one of us. And this we talk about in terms of God's saving grace. There is God's saving grace. As I mentioned, for all have sinned. Okay? We understand that, Pastor. All of us is. Let me put it in an, uh, uh, from another perspective, from Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities, that's sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so the, that he does not hear. Sin separates mankind from God. And since we're all born into sin, we're immediately separated from God. There is no goodness in us. Oh, we can do good things, but that doesn't bring us into a right relationship with God. Sin has separated us from God. Have you ever asked yourself the question, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, have you ever asked yourself this, yourself this question? What is sin? What is sin? Maybe a silly question, but I thought we'd look at it for just a split moment here because I think it's important for us to understand. And, and to understand what sin is, I went back to Genesis 3, actually Genesis 2, 15, where I discovered so simply sin is breaking God's law or laws. It's crossing a line that God has forbidden us to cross. It is disobedient. I remember as a kid... Uh, we, we as friends often had sort of little fights among us. That's kids do that. You know, we're friends, the besties in, in one moment, and the next moment you have a little fight. I remember one kid was really irritated with me, and we were somewhere, and he, and he took his foot, and he said, put a line right in the, in, the, in the dirt. He says, don't you step over that line. Because you know me now. <laughs> step over the line. Boom, right in the nose. He hit me. And then about five minutes later, we're best friends again. I had to tell my mom, oh, you know, it's just a little something. Don't worry about it, mom. But sin is crossing that line. God has clearly told us there are certain things you should not do, and I'm commanding you, do not do them. It's crossing a line. Let me read for you Genesis 2, 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord had commanded the man, commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and, good, and of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Now that's a pretty clear command, don't you think? And God says, There's the line, and I don't want you to cross it. And so he created mankind, but he created them with the uh, a very specific design, which included the capacity for moral responsibility, knowing right from wrong. He says, here's something where I'm telling you right now. Don't do this. If you do, it's wrong. Now, by the way, uh, you may be asking, why did God put the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Why did, he, why did he do that? Why didn't he just leave it out of there and they would have just carried on? I think 
the, the most basic, straightforward, and I think it, it, it reaches my heart with great understanding. If God had not given Adam and Eve the choice, they would have essentially been robots. It wouldn't have been a real relationship with God. They wouldn't have had that ability to love God through obedience. And that's why he put it there. God created Adam and Eve. He created us to be free beings, to make decisions, to be able to choose between good and evil. And in order for Adam and Eve and us to be truly free, we have to have a choice. So he gave them that choice. We see it in Genesis 2.15. And it's not only there, but later on, even in Deuteronomy 30, Verses 11 through 20, a whole section there where God is reminding people of uh, what they needed to do to have a right relationship with God. Uh, he talked about obedience to, the, to his commandments. He said, uh, verses 16 to 18, If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules... Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So, we were created to have this relationship with God that was based out of a free will, but with obedience came blessing. With disobedience comes cursing. That's what happened. The curse happened beginning in Genesis 2 and 3, and we're still experiencing it today. But along with that, we also know that if we obey God then we have these blessings. And I'm sure that you can talk about blessings of God in your life. And I, I'm sure they come out of obedience. So sin is breaking God's law, but sin is also making ourselves the lawmaker. We really, uh, we take on that role of becoming lawmakers if we disobey. For God knows, Genesis 3, verse 5, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good for evil. Uh, for evil. Uh, knowing God, uh, pardon me, knowing good and evil uh, is saying to God when we choose evil, okay, God, I know that you gave me this command, uh, but you know what? I'm going to take over your role in my life. I'm going to decide what is right and what is wrong. And guess what we become? We become little gods to ourselves. God himself says, okay, you want to do that. I've already told you that obedience brings blessing. You choose this. It is not going to go well for you. So we make ourselves the lawmaker. Thirdly, Sin is putting ourselves in God's place. Similar thought, uh, when we decide that we know better than God, then we really shove God off the throne of our lives. I've often thought of it in terms of this way, that in my life, in the center of my life, there is a, a seat. 
And the rightful person that should be on that seat is God himself. And, you know, if, if I'm living properly, that seat is raised up in my heart and mind as God taking control of my life, living my, uh, helping me to live my life to, to the very best for his glory. But when I choose to uh, put myself in God's place, I crawl up that little hill and I push God off, say, I got this. How many of us have said to God, I got this? Maybe not verbally, but by our actions. And we live a week out where we never even talk to him, we never even ask for his help, but we live it out in our own strength and in our own capabilities. That's shoving God off the throne. Well, we don't want to take God off the throne. But let me remind you, that struggle is an all-day, everyday struggle. When we wake up in the morning, our first First thought should be, Lord, be the Lord of my life. God, be the Lord of my life. Take that rightful position on the throne of my life. And the rest of the day is keeping him there, making sure that uh, we step back and let him do his role in our life. Fourth, sin. Now, here's some of the actions that come out of sin. Sin mutilates the image of God in us. So God, Genesis 1.27 created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Do you think about this much? That we are created in the image of God. And when we sin, it's it's like we've, we've hacked that image to pieces. When our society chooses to step out of the right uh, way of thinking, and you know, as we're dealing with right now gender issues, we all know what's happening. This is a mutilation of the image of God in the life of men and women, and most terribly in the life of children. We got to remember that we were created in the most precious and holy image of God. And when we come to Christ, we have all that we need to live out that perfect holy image for his glory. Sin is terrible. Lastly, sin ruins our lives and the lives of those around us. How can we break God's law? How can we determine our own laws, depose God, deny our humanity, without terrible consequences. And so when we think about the grace of God, let's not forget what the grace of God has done for us. As sinners, we have broken the heart of God. As we live our days out each and every day, and even as Christians, when we sin, we break the heart of God. God takes sin... Seriously, do we? Do we really take sin seriously? Sort of to sum up what we've talked about so far, Psalm 53, 2 to 3 came to mind. It says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's God looking down on a broken and sinful world. 
Then God looks at his children and he finds great pleasure in them. May we be found in a place where we seek to keep him on the throne of our lives and to never forget about the wonderful grace of God in our salvation, the saving grace. Two, why is grace so desperately needed? Because we need it for everyday living, and this is the sustaining grace of God. There was a British runner, Derek Redmond. Uh, This is in 1992. He was hoping to come back from some injuries that he had had, uh, going to the Olympics. He wanted to win gold. As a matter of fact, as he was doing the qualifiers, he was the fastest time in the quarterfinal heat. And he was pumped up, and he was ready to go. And and you know how the gun goes off, and boom, out of the the, the gate they are. They're running. And as he ran, he was uh, doing really well uh, up in the lead. And then all of a sudden, his right hamstring tore. Done. And he fell to the ground. Oh, maybe some of you saw those 1992 Olympics and remember Derek. What mostly we will remember is he trying to get up hobbling, hobbling in significant pain to try to finish that race. And along comes beside him, we discover it's his father. Father gets his arm around him, puts his arm around his dad. He hobbles. They hobble together to the finish line. And just before the finish line, his father releases him. And Derek crosses the line on his own. What an amazing moment. I don't know. I see that as much like the race that we run each day. As a matter of fact, it says in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We, folks, are in a race. If you don't get it, hopefully today it will sink in. Every day we live until the day that glory is before us. We're in a race. We are moving along, and yes, sometimes, too often, the race is a struggle, and we are hobbling along. And, and do we go to God and we say, God, I need help. I need your grace. So what is God's sustaining grace? God's sustaining grace is the power to keep you going even when you feel like giving up. And I, I doubt there are too many of us in this room who had a moment in our life that we didn't say, ah, oh, Lord, I just want to give up. I want to stay in bed. I want to keep the lights off and the, pull the blankets over my head. I just, I don't have it. I don't have it for today. But then we remember that God has offered us grace for each day, sustaining grace, the power that helps us endure when we don't think we can. Remember, folks, life is not a sprint. It is a marathon. And if we don't go to God, seek the daily sustaining grace 
life will always feel hopeless. Even as Christians, we will go, I don't know if I can get through this. But we can with God's sustaining grace. When do we really need God's sustaining grace? When do we really need it? Well, I know that from my personal perspective, I, I need God's sustaining grace when I'm tempted. You know, we live in a world that this is the world of Satan right now. He's ruling it. He's influencing it. And uh, he is doing everything he can to draw me away from keeping God at the center of my life and to obeying God and seeking God's blessing. He is the tempter. He, he, he began uh, in earnest with Jesus as, as Jesus came on uh, the scene. Jesus was tempted. He was given opportunity to have everything that you and I would want. And Jesus says, no, I want only God, only God's word. I want only to obey and be blessed by my heavenly Father. Let's never forget, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Don't be that someone. Be on high alert always that the devil is doing whatever he can to draw you away from obedience to the Almighty God. I also think when I think about this, I think we do a disservice to new Christians that we don't remind them, or we don't tell them about the devil's plan. We don't say, ah, oh, it's great, you've been born again, you've received God's saving grace. And we let them go on without talking to them and saying, now, dear young Christian, be mindful. The devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour He's out there crouching in the sides, waiting to pounce, waiting to draw you into a life. He's not happy with you right now because you've changed your allegiances. You've given your heart to Christ. And no, he can't get you back, but he certainly will do everything he can to make you useless for God. That doesn't have to be because God gives us his sustaining grace. Not only that, that sustaining grace, we have access to it each and every day so that temptations that come will not grab us. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you know this verse, you've heard it, believe it. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Isn't that wonderful? He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So devil, you do what you want to do, but God has given me sustaining grace, the ability to live my life where I keep you, God, on the throne. It's so important as we listen to this. We know one thing's for sure, we're not alone. Paul is telling us we're not alone. Secondly, God is faithful. He will not let us get into a situation where we don't have a means of escape. Maybe it will be, you'll have to change the channel. Maybe it will mean that you have to run out of a door somewhere and leave that place where you're at. 
Maybe it will be that you will have to purposely change your thinking. Maybe it'll be that you have to turn off the computer. Maybe. But God will provide a way of escape. That's his promise. And I believe the promises of God. Do you? So we need God's sustaining grace when we're tempted. Secondly, we need God's sustaining grace when I'm tired. And this goes along with what we've talked about already this morning. Life is hard. Maybe even some would say exhausting. Maybe it's not each and every day. But there comes a time when we cry out to God and say, I'm tired. I'm so tired. I need your help, Lord. Get me through this day. And David in Psalm 28 says it so well in verse 7. The Lord is my strength. He is my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is our strength. When you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you're at the end of your rope, when you feel that all your personal resources are dwindled, I say let's follow David's example, and let's cry out to him and and remind God, God, you're my strength. You promised to uphold me. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see how many times the word comforted in, in that two verses? God is our God of comfort. Because he's the father of mercies. He's a God of comfort. And, uh, you know, when you've felt, experienced, been overwhelmed by our father of mercies with his comfort, you know it. You know it's from him. And it is nothing better. And here, Paul even tells us, the same comfort you experienced, pass that on to others. Share the love of God and the comfort of God. Remind others that in Christ we find comfort. From the Father we receive comfort. He knows our trials. He knows our tribulations. He knows when we're exhausted. Truth is that it is a great challenge to be a Christian. Especially if you're going to walk the the narrow path. And when you walk that narrow path, honoring God in all your life decisions, in the way you think and what you watch and where you go, when you live that narrow path, it's, it's challenging. It can be tiring. But God's promises are sure. You will be blessed. And when you are tired, he will comfort you. He will give you strength. He will direct you. He will guide you. He will give you the wisdom. He will give you the power to live a life on that narrow path. Lastly, we need God's sustaining power when we're troubled. Trouble's a little different. Look at this from the the way we, we serve God. Challenges are a part of living for Christ. They should be expected. In life, you're gonna have obstacles. As you obey God's call in your life, 
for vision and ministry, both as a church family, we have this, and as individuals, no matter what trouble we or you run into, God will give you sustaining grace. Paul says in Philippians 4, says it so well, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. No matter what the trouble is in your life, Paul reminds us that in Christ we can do all things. We can get through those troubles. We can rely on this promise that Paul gives us, knowing that God's sustaining grace brings us strength, direction, power, hope. If we see an end to the tunnel, if we see a little light, guess what? There's hope. I want to go there. That's where God is. That's what God wants me to do. And with that, we find strength and power. Isaiah says it so well in 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Dear believer today, if you're struggling, if you're having a, a tough time this week and you are troubled, trying to live for God and, and things aren't going the way you want, remember, God is there. He will uphold you. So let's remember, let's look at what God promises to be with us, to strengthen us, to help us, to hold us up. He is a God whose grace saves us. He is the God whose grace sustains us. So I ask you one more time, what's so amazing about God's grace? everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and for all of these scriptures that remind us of your good, powerful, saving and sustaining grace. You know the heart of everyone in this room and what they need today. Bring to their minds the maybe aha moment that they needed to be reminded of or hear for the first time. And I pray for my dear friends and church family here. Bless them with a clear-cut understanding of your amazing grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.